Hello and welcome to another episode of Consumer, the European podcast of the Consumer Choice Center. As always, I'm your host, Bill Words, with Billy Joel's pressure fading out in the background. Happy New Year 2022. I hope you had wonderful celebrations and that you're starting off right into the new year. I'm currently in Amsterdam and the Netherlands and unfortunately lockdown is possible to continue even past January 14, so that's unfortunate. I hope it is better where you are currently. Uh, this is the episode of Thursday, January 13, 2022, and we're starting the year off in a very interesting fashion. Our guest this week is Stefan de Koning. He is a parliamentary assistant for the member of the European Parliament, Sophie Intveld. Um, probably butchering the name here, so my Dutch listeners do apologize. I do apologize to my Dutch listeners here for uh, getting that wrong. He'll be joining us later in the episode to talk about the new Dutch government, what we should be looking out for, what the new dynamic of the new Dutch government that it was actually... Uh, I think they were um, sworn in this week. So uh, interesting stuff there coming from New Dynamics in the Netherlands. Also in this episode, we'll be talking about the European Commission's decision to include nuclear power into the uh, green taxonomy of the European Union. And we will also be talking about the carbon border adjustment of the European uh, Union. So very green episode, very uh, uh, climate uh, policy heavy. Uh, so yeah, let's get started. The European Commission has made public a draft law that would label some nuclear energy and gas energy projects as green investments. Nuclear power plants do not emit greenhouse gra gases, and they could be counted as environmentally friendly if there are detailed plans for disposing of radioactive waste safely. The proposal comes just a day after Germany shut down three of its six nuclear power plants for good, and the German Environment Minister Steffi Lemke is calling the project a mistake. So obviously Germany is not very happy about this and also some people were unhappy because the announcement um, by the European Commission or at least the, the leaked documents I think came out uh, just before the new year with not too much attention in the media going out uh, for it but now the European Union is very divided. Um, you have basically you have France, which is very supportive of nuclear energy, uh, is now announcing to build uh, new nuclear power stations, including uh, new, new generation um, uh, stations there. And you have uh, Germany, which is very opposed to nuclear energy to phase out with the energy transition started in 2000. Uh, and 11 or 2012, this was after the Fukushima uh, nuclear incident. And uh, yeah, so this is a very interesting shift. And it seems that the European Commission has now decided to label nuclear power as part of the, the climate change solutions. Obviously, well, if it is a climate emergency, then we need to react quickly. And nuclear power is uh, necessary as a part of that, as the IPCC report have uh, reports have shown that nuclear power needs to be part of the energy mix in order to fight uh, climate change. Um, of course, uh, it, it is interesting to see how the French have lobbied for this. Uh, Thierry Breton, he's the uh, European Union Commissioner for Internal Markets. And uh, it was very interesting to distinguish, well, is he... Um, is he representative of the European Commission or is he a representative of France? Because he sounded already very pro-nuclear in interviews that he gave to Bloomberg even prior to this decision. The other issue that was uh, very contentious yesterday, but I know you're very direct and, and you're going to give me a clear answer on this, on nuclear energy, it does seem that bills are now going up in Europe. There's a big energy crisis happening going into Christmas. Is nuclear a good idea or not? 
Well, I have been always extremely clear. Uh, in order to achieve our um, uh, uh, Green Deal and the zero CO2 uh, emission by 2050, we will need nuclear energy. Everybody will saying the, uh, the contrary. It's just not saying the truth. Because we need, on one hand, to double uh, the electricity that we produce. Today, we are producing already 26% of our electricity for nuclear. So there is no way that we will be uh, able uh, to do this without nuclear energy. So you say no there's way. no green transition so, without nuclear energy. If you I'm, say that, it's, it's, it's a mean, lie. I'm clear. It's, it's, I'm clear. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's just, um, and I think everyone, everyone understands this. So now, of course, the question is that uh, in the so-called taxonomy, which is, again, uh, um, uh, how to organize ourselves to finance uh, what is needed to achieve uh, this Green Deal. So now the question is uh, to put in a dele delegated act uh, uh, how to handle uh, the situation with gas and nuclear energy. And I have no doubt that we'll be able to reach an agreement uh, in the next few weeks. Now, I'm not sure if I'm a fan of Thierry Breton, but I'm definitely a fan of the, the position that he takes here. And, and France has not only assured that it's uh, carbon dioxide emissions levels are much, much lower than those of Germany, especially right now. It also assured a, a better price stability for its electricity. And of course, the additional reason why France got really into nuclear power in the 70s was to create energy independence, making it less uh, uh, dependent on, on Russian gas, for instance. So, so a lot of things happening there. Now, what exactly does this mean uh, for nuclear power in, in Europe? Overall, it doesn't mean much. It means just um, that the investments can be labeled as green and what exactly that will mean member state per member state is still yet to be seen. Um, but it certainly sends a signal that Europe uh, goes, at least well, half of Europe, goes away that is in favor of nuclear power. Very interesting as well is that if you look in Scandinavia, the Greens in Finland, for instance, are very pro-nuclear power. So also there are ideological divergence between uh, what we consider green and what we consider necessary. Um, overall, I, I, think, I think we're going to stay on this climate issue now with the next topic. The CBAM, so this is the uh, Carbon Border Adjustment Mechanism, um, and uh, it is very interesting to, to, to see how they're not calling it a tax because, well, in, in, in essentially it is an import tariff. Uh, let me play you what the European Commission released as an explainer video about this carbon border adjustment. The EU is at the forefront of international efforts to fight climate change. But climate change is a global problem that demands global solutions. For maximum effect, we want to inspire industry and trading partners outside of Europe to take steps in the same direction. This will also help us avoid what's known as carbon leakage, the risk that industry moves from the EU to countries with lower environmental standards, or that the EU market gets flooded with carbon-intensive goods. That's why the EU needs a new, green system for imports. One that puts a fair price on the carbon used to produce the most emission-heavy imports and encourages cleaner industry in non-EU countries. The EU's Carbon Border Adjustment Mechanism will help spur green ambition and a global shift to more sustainable industry. So overall, the idea here is to also level the playing field in, in the competition area within Europe. So basically, if you're producing within the European Union, you're subjugated to the, to the rules and regulations of how to produce your products. But if you're based in Ukraine or Belarus, even though Belarus is complicated because of all well, there's currently sanctions, or you're based in Turkey as a producer, you can freely import to the European Union 
depending on the products. Um, but you won't be subjugated to the same to the same rules and regulations. And to level that playing field, this carbon border adjustment will tax these products. Now, of course, this will have price effects for consumers, obviously, because as prices go up, when uh, the necessities to innovate for those factories um, uh, increase as well, that will have effects on consumer prices. And the question is, of course, is this legitimate in a time when we already have inflation uh, that is quite considerable on food products, but also on, on, on other domestic products that people use? So this will be a conversation that we'll be continuing to have. But what I'm really interested in, and that's what we've heard very little about, is what exactly... Um, will be the reaction of the World Trade Organization. Are those rules compatible with WTO uh, measures? Won't uh, third-party countries outside of the European Union not be able to complain in front of the uh, WTO and say, well, this is unfair trading practices uh, because we don't do this uh, for other rules as well? I mean, let's just assume that uh, Ukraine were to impose uh, similar import tariffs on, on the European Union. Of course, Ukraine doesn't necessarily have the right standing to be able to politically implement that because it's quite uh, dependent on the trade with Europe. Uh, but it can also mean that we can alienate some of our trading partners. Uh, some countries might be looking for other trading partners with China, with the US, with Russia, if Europe becomes less and less interesting because the, com the competitive edge of those, of those uh, uh, producers go away. Um, so I think it's really a fine line that we need to find here, um, both for consumers, but also for the for the for the domestic policy interest of the of the European Union, because there is one part of trying to get CO two emissions level on an equivalent uh, between EU and non EU European states, but the other thing is of course um, keeping the necessary uh, financial resources to be able to innovate. I think. Um, my friend Fergan Aziari uh, in France, he wrote an excellent book about this um, in, in, in French in, in which he explains that uh, generally we see that the countries that do the most environmental protection are also the richest countries. You need a certain fiscal firepower in order to be able to invest into new technologies. Um, and uh, we can't allow ourselves to become a shrinking trading block uh, just for the for the sake of uh, of certain emissions not being created in the production of, of our products. Um, but of course, there is a definite question about the level playing field. And I'm not sure if the producers in the European Union should necessarily be mad at uh, the outsiders, but if they shouldn't be maybe more mad at the the unequal distribution and, and resources that some producers have for this others to in order to to respect the um, to be in compliance with new rules that are being implemented by the European Union. But that's an entire conversation that we'll have, and it seems that we'll have it this year because uh, CBAM, the Carbon Border Adjustment Mechanism, is going to be part of the reimbursement of the next generation EU recovery fund, which is how we fund the recovery from the COVID-19 pandemic that is actually still ongoing. Um, and that's another interesting conversation that we're going to have because the European Commission expects to raise a certain amount of money every year from a carbon border adjustment. But the ultimate goal, of course, is to phase out the necessity for this tax altogether. So if um, if that if that tax will really raise enough money until 2058, which is the time by, by which we need to, you know, reimburse the loans, 
that uh, um, that we've taken up over the course of this pandemic, uh, I'm not sure that's really going to be a long-term solution. It's a bit like the taxation on tobacco. Well, if the idea of the government is to eventually get rid of cigarettes altogether, but it keeps taxing it and relying on the income, there's a bit of a disconnect here between well, what is the tax supposed to achieve and what does it serve in terms of what deficit reduction so that's really interesting conversations that we're going to continue keep having and i'm really i'm, I'm still looking for a guest i can have on this especially on the trade legality of uh, of cbam but now let's move to the interview of the week my guest this week is stefan de Koning. he's an assistant for sophie intveld in the european parliament and uh, yeah this was our conversation about the new dutch government all right stefan first of all thank you so much for joining us uh just a brief background on you um you work in the european parliament that's correct well it's my pleasure yes i do i work for a dutch mep called sophie nitveld she's a member of the uh, renew group and she is mostly involved with issues dealing with rule of law uh fundamental rights all that stuff Excellent. Yeah, she's been she's been in the news in and out the entire conversations about the situation in Hungary and, and Poland. I know that she she also uh, uh, gives a lot of speeches on that topic. So that's very interesting. But what we have you on today is because we want to talk about the Netherlands. A lot of people have uh, noticed that the Netherlands took unusually long to form a new government, but finally the time has come. There is a new government in place. So can you just lead us through a bit of uh, some new faces. Uh, also, what does the composition look like? Who got what? Give people a bit of an impression as to where we stand now with the new Dutch government. Well, of course, I'm not completely unbiased, but uh, I would say that my own party, D66, um, got most of the uh, gains in terms of you know the contents of the, the agreement that the coalition parties uh, agreed on to form this new government. Uh, on top of that, they are also the second biggest party. Second biggest, biggest party in Holland traditionally gets the finance ministry, which is, of course, the most important ministry after the prime minister. Uh, and I would also argue that it's the most important European posting uh, to be had. The previous uh, finance minister, Wopke Hoekstra, is moving to the foreign ministry. So he will be, um, yeah, he will remain to be an important uh, Dutch face in the world, so to speak. Um, I think other than that, the biggest, basically the, the biggest uh, postings that are new would be in the, in the Department of Climate and uh, Nature Preservance. So there's a big, uh, well, not big, but there's a special minister to deal with the, um, the problem of nitrous deposits. As you know, uh, or may know, the Netherlands is one of the biggest, uh, I think the second biggest agricultural exporter in the world after the United States in absolute terms. Uh, all that agriculture com uh, combined with cars, with uh, industry, heavy industry, um, has led to an enormous amount of nitrous deposits and, you know, there's now a special minister to deal with it. Um, this will be a very interesting development because it also means uh, a 25 billion euro investment in um, basically moving away from intensive agriculture into uh, more sustainable agriculture. So I would say this is the area in which the Netherlands will be leading again. Uh, I mean, it's already leading in agriculture, but it will be leading in a different way. So those are, for me, the most significant um, uh, changes. Mm -hmm. 
We'll get we'll get to the climate issues because I have a certain policy uh, things I wanted to get into with you. But first, just wanted to let you know in terms of the uh, on, on, on get your take on the personnel. One personal question, of course, is that Mr. Rutte is staying, and I'm pretty sure your party has a bit of a, a love-hate relationship with Mr. Rutte, who's now, I think, next to Viktor Orban, one of the longest-serving heads of government in the enti- on the entire continent. Uh, he seems to be very sturdy, he keeps to remain in power, but how solid would you evaluate is his position now going forward? Um, I would say that his position is, of course... Um strong because his party is still the biggest one. Um, Having said that, um, I think what is a bit obscured by the fact that the previous coalition now has enough seats to form a new government is that the the trust that Dutch voters, Dutch citizens have in their government um, is on the decline. Uh, It was declining before the elections, but the elections fell somewhere in the middle of the, this process. So it's a bit obscured. Um, Mark Rutte is a survivor, uh, which means that he is able to adapt to the political circumstances. As you may remember, you said he's one of the longest serving prime ministers. Um, his first cabinet was actually with the far right PVV. And now Geert Wilders is of course a well-known quantity in European politics. Um, he's a friend of, of Vladimir Putin's. He's a friend of, a friend of Viktor Orban's. So, if you can work with both Putin and D66, uh, sorry, with uh, PVV and D66, that means that you're able to adapt. Um, and the Prime Minister Rutte we see now is a very different animal from, um, you know, Prime Minister Rutte in 2010. Um, these are, uh, you can say this on the basis of optics, but you can also say this um, on the basis of what he says that he believes in. Um, especially towards Europe, I think his beliefs have changed. There's a, a Dutch journalist called Lise Witteman, and she wrote a book about this, and she really demonstrates that there's a point in time, let's say six, seven years ago, where on, at, which, at which Rutte really understood, like, okay, I have my policy views, on, uh, and I have my view on Europe, and my view on Europe is now changing because I see how Europe can help me achieve my policy goals. And this, is, uh, this has made it, I think, more into a European thinking leader than he was before. That is very interesting. One wonders if there's a bit of a comparison to be drawn, because that's, that's for a long time what people said about Chancellor Merkel in Germany, is that she's also become very adaptable to you know, whatever the polls of the, of the week say. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll see with Mr. Rutte if he's going to be... Uh, if it's going to be remembered in the same way that uh, that that Miss uh, Merkel um, was. Um, in any way, I wanted to get a shift to to policy because uh, that's usually what we talk about uh, the most on on, on this podcast. Uh, so there's two issues and and that I wanted to get into with you. Um, the the new government seems very adamant about the importance of of, of fighting climate change. And there's different tools that come into the question here, and energy policy is one of it. Um, and another one and that, that has also been on, on, in the conversation on on EU level for quite a while is carbon uh, taxes. So in the EU, we talk you know, through everything from carbon border adjustments uh, to um, the entire rethinking of the ETS, emissions trading uh, uh, system uh, in the European Union. So what is new here? What is the government planning in terms of cap, uh, taxing carbon dioxide emissions? And uh, will this be part of the solution of fighting climate change and reducing uh, CO2 emissions in the Netherlands? Um, I think 
If you look at, uh, for instance, the emissions trading systems in Europe, um, this is a, a big piece of the puzzle. Uh, and I think either you hate it or you love it, but most people will agree that it had the desired effect of, of pricing carbon and progressively pricing carbon. I mean, the price of carbon is now, uh, is it at 60 or 70 uh, euros per, I don't know which unit they use, megatons or whatever. At, at, uh, I'll have to look it up. But uh, Yeah, I'll... you have to look it up, but it's, <laughs> it's uh, you know, it's, it's rising steeply. It's, it's not rising in a sort of steady line. Um, I would say that Dutch psychology means, you know, dictates that, that such a pricing system is to be preferred over, you know, the strong hand of the government dictating the price. I think this is more of a market mechanism. Um, and we quite like that. Uh, having said that, there's another piece to it, which is like direct taxing of carbon emissions, uh, border adjustment, all that stuff. It's a bit of a puzzle to me why this has not been um, one of the Dutch sort of like things that the Dutch government was in favor of because, you know, we should like these things. We should like a level playing field. But for some reason, uh, I think the uh, skepticism towards European uh, uh, Taxes levied at the European level, I think that won out uh, over the course of you know many decades, and now basically the coin is flipping the other way. Uh, the skepticism of European taxes has sort of uh, diminished a bit, and and the the call for European action is being answered. So I think those two have been competing with each other, and now direct taxes to fight climate change are a tool that's been deemed necessary or acceptable. Yeah. Now, something that we, when we talk about these issues in our organization, want to uh, also put our finger on is sort of the if the, the, the social uh, justice effect there, because people on lower incomes will be affected by, by certain taxes. If you increase the price of goods, um, that, that is certainly an, an, an you know, something to consider. I, I, I spend a lot of time in Amsterdam and I see that, you know, in Amsterdam, a lot of people, they get themselves a nice electric car and they don't necessarily go a large distance, but then you go into more rural Netherlands and you won't see as many electric cars because people on lower incomes won't have the, the ability to, to innovate and have the capital to do that. Um, I, I assume this will has already been a conversation in the Netherlands, how to address the problem of, pe of the affordability of you know, protecting the, the climate? Um, I, I think in terms of mobility, it helps when almost everybody in the country is riding a bike. Uh, it helps when, uh, I mean, I live in Belgium, car usage here is, is way, way, big, way, way more intense than in the Netherlands. If I, if I look out of the window, my entire street will be full of cars. There will be parking lots on both sides. This is something you will not see in Amsterdam. Um, nor The Hague, nor Utrecht, just name all the big cities in the Netherlands. And they are now, I would say, you know, they, they are pedestrian friendly, bike friendly, they're, they're much less car friendly than they used to be. So there's not much to gain there. Um, I don't think that, um, I don't think it will be a problem because one aspect of this new government is that they are spending a lot of money and they're willing to take a lot, lot they're willing to take on a lot of uh, sovereign debt for this. Um, projections are that uh, the Dutch uh, sovereign debt will, will rise, it will rise well over 60%, uh, it will go maybe even into the, into the low 90s. Um, 
I think it's a reflection of the fact that baby boomers have all the power and now, they're, now there's a lot of money being spent uh, to accommodate their wishes. The Dutch state has long been on a course to become like a lean and mean state that's nimble, um, but now we see that a lot of state capacity has also suffered. So for instance, uh, mobility into rural areas, think about uh, bus connections, uh, regional train connections, all that stuff. That has been on the low burner, and now I would say, you know, those are the type of areas where we can expect some more investment again. Yeah. Mm. Then another issue is, is energy policy, and, and here I think it's quite interesting. The, the the Dutch government, the new Dutch government, seems to put an emphasis on the importance of nuclear power. Uh, this is a big uh, battle going on in the European Union right now, especially with the European Commission now labeling. Uh, 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 nuclear power, probably labeling nuclear power as a, a sustainable investment. Germany very opposed to this. France, on the other hand, Emmanuel Macron announcing big investments into new types of nuclear uh, uh, power stations. Um, is this a shift in, in Dutch politics? Has this, has this been up and coming? And is this like, oh, this is what we need to do to fight climate change, but there hasn't been, as in France, maybe as, as much of an attachment to nuclear power? Is this energy independence? Is it trying to not be dependent on Russian gas? Where are all the motivations coming from for this, uh, for this announcement for more investments into nuclear energy? Yeah, I would say there, if, you, if you put European member states on a scale... On the left side, we have pro-nuclear, which is France, and on the right side, there's Germany, very anti-anti-nuclear. Um, uh, I would say that the Green Party is a direct offspring of the anti-nuclear movement in Germany. Um, some people may correct me if I'm wrong, but I think they're they're a direct descendant of that movement. Uh, the Dutch are somewhere on that line. They're not fully in the in the German camp, but they're also not in the in the French camp, just because we don't really have many nuclear power plants. The one that we have is is aging um, and, you know, there's not really a taboo on it. But on the other hand, people are not really jumping to get one in their backyard as well. Um, a fun, you know, fun fact or maybe an important fact is that it has been possible to open a nuclear power plant in the Netherlands for quite a while now. If you go to the government, you say, hey, here's my business plan, I want to open a nuclear power plant, uh, that's already possible. It has been possible for years now. There's just nobody who thinks that it's a, a sound investment. Um, I don't know, like, I'm not in a nuclear power business. I wouldn't open a nuclear power plant in the Netherlands. Uh, labor is quite expensive. Uh, it's not exactly bedrock soil that you have in Finland, for instance. Uh, there's the risk of flooding, uh, you know, just name it. And And then you have to go into the process of getting it approved by a local or a regional government. You know, all things considered, I think it's new that the government is a bit more vocal about saying, okay, we're pro-nuclear energy or we're not really opposed to it. But it's, you know, in practice, I would say wait and see. Uh, maybe, 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 you know, the Netherlands will now be on the side of the pro-nuclear, you know, majority or plurality or whatever you want to call it in the council but uh, domestically I don't I don't see a nuclear power plant materializing anytime soon yeah well with the with the with the gas prices this winter one wishes maybe that electric heating might be a bit more of an of an option but uh, we'll, we'll yes. see how that develops yeah. electrification will go on for sure and uh, and don't forget I mean Germany is now a bit of a 
you know, is the case to watch because Germany is closing its uh, nuclear power plants. People are saying, well, uh, this is a really, really inconvenient timing. On the other hand, uh, there is a case to be made that the uh, that the wind and solar uh, sector in Germany has profited greatly from you know diminishing nuclear power. Uh, in the long term, I would say this is the way to go. I don't see. I can understand if you're if you're trying to kick like a, a coal habit, uh, for instance, in Poland or in uh, the Czech Republic. Sure, I can understand that it's much easier to envis envisage a nuclear future, but for the Netherlands. I think, you know, we'll see. Wait and see. But I, I'm not betting on it, no. And that concludes this week's episode of Consumer. Thank you so much for listening. You can follow Stefan de Koning on Twitter at Stefan de Koning one And, of course, follow the Consumer Choice Center as well at Consumer Choice C. As always, I'm your host, Bill Words. See you Thursday. You have to learn to pace yourself. Pressure. You're just like everybody.